0: Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest VODCAST, and this is going to be an abdominal trauma, and I kind of titled it Select Topics. I'm not going to cover everything there is to know about abdominal trauma, but several very important different areas that I thought we would share with you. This morning, I have to give a talk on abdominal trauma at the 100th uh, anniversary of the Texas Radiological Society in April, so I put it together for that meeting, so let's get started. Well, if you look at trauma in the U.S., it is a major problem. 100,000 deaths annually is the leading cause of death in every age group through age 44. Blunt trauma accounts for about 70% of trauma cases, two-thirds of which are related to motor vehicle accidents, and in terms of cost, it's $300 billion a year minimum in the U.S. every year. Now, a lot's been spoken about, about CT of trauma, and particularly with the newer scanners. This article by Soto, very nice state-of-the-art article worth reading, talks about a PAN scan, CT of the head, neck, chest, abdomen, and pelvis is an essential element in the early evaluation decision-making algorithm for hemodynamically stable patients who've stained abdominal trauma. And again, in terms of how we do things, not every patient obviously should be getting a CT for trauma. Some need to go to surgery immediately, and some does not, do not need c- CT at all. If you do CT, you don't always need to do a PAN scan, but the point is that we do have lots of capabilities, and in the right scenario, the PAN scan is indeed important. So in terms of making your protocol decisions, there really are several things you need to think about. Let me first focus on that. So the first thing is you really need to think about the area to be scanned. If someone's stabbed in the chest, you don't need an abdominal CT. And if they're scanned or stabbed in the abdomen, you don't need a pelvis CT, maybe, or a lower extremity CT, or a head and neck CT, or a chest CT. So really think about what area you need to be scanned. Obviously, you're in an MVA there's a much larger area to typically cover. You also want to think about the type of injury. What type of uh, pathology you'll see was really dependent often on the type of injury so for example what you'll see with a gunshot wound or a stab wounds can be different than what you see in an auto accident both in terms of the location the type of injury and what you might expect to see but also that will define the protocols remember a gunshot wound uh, you really want to be thinking about uh, contrast extravasation CTA becomes critical in that scenario for example Also, you need to be practical, understand what scanner you have. Do you have a flash scanner or a 16-slice scanner? What do you have and design protocols accordingly. And again, we also always work on the uh, referring physician's information, what they know, what they expect, as well as what our imaging studies or lab values have to tell us. So in designing the protocol, contrast becomes very important. We typically do not give oral contrast, though sometimes we give water. We essentially never give positive contrast. IV contrast is routinely used. In thoracic or abdominal trauma, it really is mandatory. If you're only looking at an ankle fracture, typically you don't need contrast, but everything else you do. We'll speak about bladder and rectal contrast. In the right scenarios, it's critical. Patients with pelvic fractures, bladder injury is always a consideration. Patients with gunshot wounds, you might worry about, uh, depending where the gunshot wound is, of course, but if it's to the pelvis or to the abdomen, perhaps there's bowel injury, perhaps you should be giving rectal contrast. Again, we'll speak about that. And then once we make the decisions about contrast, then it's the scan parameters. KVP, MAS, we want to do the best... Uh, low-dose study possible while getting the maximum information. Depending on the injury, depending on what we're thinking about, scan delay. Are we doing arterial phase or are we doing venous phase? Most trauma is done in venous phase, but select cases we do arterial phase and perhaps multiple phases, arterial, venous, and even delayed phase. Contrast volumes and injection rates will depend on patient size and the specifics of what we're doing, and again, the role of post-processing. A number of articles recently do make the point with things like the PAN scan, coronals and sagittals are mandatory, 3D imaging becomes very critical, so again, this whole idea about volume imaging becomes even more important. So, our protocols, depending on patient size, 100 to 120 kVp using care dose with a standard of 250 MAS. We'll typically reconstruct slice thickness, thin and thick, 0.75 and 3 millimeters, at a spacing of 0.5 and 3. We'll do the reconstructions off the 0.75 by 0.5 images. We'll reconstruct, again, depending on the scenario, with soft tissue imaging always but typically with bone and lung through key zones. And again, post-processing is something we will routinely do. A good article recently by Dresden, with a single continuous acquisition, whole body CTA is able to demonstrate all potentially injured organs as well as vascular and bone structures from the symphysis to the circle of Willis. And this article is, again, a good article to review and one of the things they speak about in great detail is the benefit of reviewing multiplanar and 3D images for timely and accurate interpretation. They also make a point that this will help avoid pitfalls and really is the way things need to be done. And they also comment that the uh, use of isotropic voxels really allows us to move away from this over-reliance on axial imaging and move to the use of coronal and sagittal imaging. And again, something we agree with 100%, and that is one of the focuses of their article. So again, this whole concept of volume imaging in a trauma patient. In their article, what they did in their PAN scan equivalent, they did a non-contrast brain CT, then they did an enhanced scan from circle of Willis at a symphysis, here was their parameters, uh, images reconstructed at 3 millimeters and, point one, and 1.5, as noted here. They used a fixed scan delay at 20 seconds for patients under age 55 and 25 seconds for over age 55. There's the biphasic injection, which you can see here, uh, which, again, some people will do, particularly with scanning long areas. They did not use oral contrast. They got delayed scans only in select cases and they scan patients with arms above the head so again that you can vary the protocol a bit timing will be variable depending if you're doing the arterial phase imaging or you want to do venous phase imaging obviously a 20 or 25 second delay is ideal when you're doing an arterial phase map so again design the protocol according to the patient now let's look at some scenarios i always like to show a case like this as a good starter And it's a trauma patient, you see some fluid, so it's some blood in the abdomen, but what's most important in this case is look at the adrenals. The adrenals are very bright. And look at this next case. The adrenals are really bright, and look at their rupture through the abdominal wall. And what all of these cases are showing you is that one of the signs of hypovolemia, one of the signs of impending shock in a trauma patient, or in fact, almost any patient, is this very bright adrenal enhancement article by Tarratt talking about hypovolemic shock in adults. Intense adrenal enhancement is defined as attenuation values equal to or greater than the IVC. It's symmetric in most cases. Uh, No one really knows definitively why there is such intense adrenal enhancement. However, it's felt to be likely a sympathetic response to hypovolemic shock, along with preservation of perfusion to the adrenal glands as a vital organ. And again, it's something you really need to be thinking about. Uh, Can it occur in other situations? I sometimes see with really rapid bolus, there is some enhancement uh, of the adrenals a little bit beyond baseline. But you really do know, because not only do you see the enhancement of the adrenal in these cases with hypovolemic, but you see other changes in bowel, pancreas, kidneys, and the aorta. So, again, very, very important. Also, the authors make the point that it's not just always hypovolemic uh, shock complex. It can be seen following severe burns or surgery. But in every single case where you see it, the patient is doing poorly. And so it's a good sign of something going on. Now, when you talk about hypovolemic shock, I'll put the bright adrenals in the top of the list, but other things. Diffuse fluid-filled dilated small bowel loops, often with hyper-enhancement. Reduced splenic perfusion. Intense enhancement of the kidneys. Peripancreatic edema and very bright enhancement of the pancreas. So there are a number of things that all particularly when put together, make the diagnosis very easy. But I will tell you, when I see those bright adrenals, I am extremely concerned and I will let the clinicians know. And here's just one more example. You see blood in the abdomen, there's a pneumothorax, the patient has a multi-organ trauma, but when the adrenals are that bright, you know you have gotta be worrying about the patient being in hypovolemic shock. So again, sometimes you'll see it earliest on the CT scan before the patient literally is suspected of having it clinically. So again, you can be of great value to the referring clinician. Now in terms of adrenal, I'll mention the adrenal. One of the causes of adrenal hemorrhage is trauma. And again, the history makes it pretty easy. There's a wide range of causes of adrenal hemorrhage, including anticoagulation. Typical things, high attenuation and non-contrast CT. Unilateral or bilateral, in time, may calcify, and it's more common in females. Again, critical thing, unilateral adrenal hemorrhage, patients do fine. Bilateral, they can go into Addisonian crisis, so it's very important. Uh, This article by uh, Sasserdot and Johnson make the point that often adrenal hemorrhage is not suspected clinically. It's really a silent diagnosis, and CT is very critical in really managing these patients. An example in the trauma setting, here's a nice right adrenal hemorrhage. It's round, it's high density. There's fluid of blood in the abdomen. This patient is post-trauma. Right adrenal hemorrhage is more common. It's often associated with renal injury and liver injury. Okay, so that's the adrenal. Let's go across to the other side, all the way to the left, and let's look at the spleen. And in terms of the spleen, what I want to comment on is we know this variable circulation through the spleen. Red and white pulp have variable circulations. And that's something we know very well. And that's important because when you look at the spleen enhancing, early on it's not a homogeneous enhancement. It really is this serpentine cord like enhancement And it's particularly prominent with fast injection rates, though it may be exaggerated in certain patients with decreased cardiac output or or heart failure, splenic vein occlusion, or portal hypertension. Now, what's important about this, when you look at it here, there's a great temptation saying, oh my goodness, there must be splenic lacerations or trauma or contusion, something's going on. Now, you realize you look at the aorta, you can see your early phase imaging, and you should, with experience, know that this is not gonna be a problem but if you're uncertain just wait 30 more seconds and look how nice the spleen looks one of the reasons people don't like early phase imaging in trauma cases is because of the irregular splenic enhancement and the potential for overcalling lesions and again here's just one more example so again very easy if you're uncertain a few additional scans is the right thing to do and that'll make it a very definitive diagnosis but typically it's not an issue We also speak about splenic arterial anatomy. There are a number of different appearances, average number of branches to the spleen um, between six and twelve. There's also a pattern called the magistral type of branching. Long splenic artery divides near the hilum into three or four short branches. And here's that magistral type seen here very nicely, very minimal branches. We also speak about variations in the venous anatomy. Though it's a little bit less frequent, we usually get a really good look, as in this case, portal vein, SMV, splenic vein, very nicely shown. Obviously, splenic vein can be involved with trauma. It can be occluded. You can see sequela from pancreatitis or pancreatic cancer, obviously. But in the trauma setting, it usually is not involved unless the patient has really a stab wound involving the vessel, which is pretty rare. Artery is more common or if it's multi-organ injury and you might have compression by something going on in the pancreas. Now, I showed you before that mosaic pattern. I just wanted to show you this case. This is when there is active bleeding in the spleen. There is no mistake what it looks like. The high density, the blush, you can see fluid in the patient's pelvis. It's not going to be a difficult diagnosis. Okay. All right, let's move on to another subject, and let me look at the pelvis. But as I look at the pelvis, I'll show you this case as the first example. It's a pregnant patient who had trauma. You can see the fracture of the uh, iliac bone and the diastasis of the right SI joint, and you can see the additional fractures here, and you can see we did this as a CTA. And then I'll just ask you the question, should I have scanned this patient? This patient had suspicion of severe injuries, but the patient was known to be pregnant. What should we do? Well, there was a good article addressed by Sadra which made the point, a major trauma when there is concern for maternal injuries, CT is the mainstay of imaging. The risk of radiation to the pregnancy is small compared to the risk of missed or delayed diagnosis of trauma. And it's important to recognize this point that The mother's life is the priority in these scenarios. Trauma is the leading cause of non-OB maternal mortality affecting up to 7% of pregnancies and a significant cause of fetal loss. Approximately 2% of level 1 trauma patients have a positive pregnancy test. So it's very important. Regardless of the trauma, if you think you need a CT scan, just do it. Cause of trauma in pregnancy, MVA, falls, assaults, violence, gunshot wounds, and again, uh, we do know that certain injuries in pregnancy are associated with increased incidence of fetal loss, pelvic and acetabular fractures, are associated with a high maternal and high fetal mortality, increasing to 75% for severe fracture patterns. So I show this case and I make the point if you worry about trauma or injury in the pregnant patient, do the CT scan. The risk to the fetus is small compared to the risk to the mother, and no one's going to argue about doing the CT scan without delay. So let's stick with the pelvis. We talk about the pelvis, usually you think about acetabular fractures or iliac wing fractures, but at the end of the day, there's much more beyond the bone, from the soft tissues to the to the bladder to the colon uh, it's very important to recognize that these injuries can lead to high morbidity and mortality and it's the secondary findings if you want to call them secondary findings they really very much can be guessed in part by how the trauma was stab wound gunshot wounds you really worry about bladder and rectal injuries motor vehicle accidents when you see a pelvic fracture then bladder becomes of great concern so if I speak about the bladder for a second, uh, trauma, blunt trauma is the leading cause. When you look at the trauma scenario, up to 85% of cases penetrating on atrogenic are less common. Geotrauma occurs in 5 to 10% of all patients with trauma. Bladder injury about 1.6%. Bladder rupture occurs in up to 11% of patients with pelvic trauma. But important thing is up to 90% of patients with a bladder rupture have a pelvic fracture. The point being is, if you don't see a pelvic fracture, it's extremely unlikely to have bladder injury. Now, when you look at the bladder, up to 80% of cases are extraperitoneal, 20% intraperitoneal, and 10% combined. Intraperitoneal has higher morbidity and mortality, and those are the ones that patients go directly to surgery. We mentioned the different types of trauma, I would say that the penetrating trauma, depending how the injury was, but a gunshot wound is more likely to give you that intraperitoneal extravasation. We talk about bladder trauma. There's an article by Sadler making the point there are five categories. Contusion, intraperitoneal, interstitial or bladder wall hematoma, extraperitoneal, and combined. Intraperitoneal we mentioned was up to 20%. Delayed diagnosis is a problem, high morbidity and high mortality. And that's because intraperitoneal bladder rupture will require surgical intervention. CT cystography is very, very good. The way we do the study, take 30 cc's of Omni 350, put it in a bag of 500 cc's of saline, and then drip it in under gravity. That works really nicely. And CT cystography is easy to do. It should be done when pelvic fluid is present, especially when there are fractures or gross hematuria, to take a really good look at the bladder and bladder wall. Now, one of the comments we make, if you know the patient has pelvic fractures from plain film or the injury type really is consistent with pelvic fractures, perhaps before you scan the patient, put a Foley in, and typically patients always have folies in, but do the CT cystogram from the get-go. This will help decrease radiation dose because you won't need to scan the patient a second time. Now, examples. Here's a case with trauma, gunshot wound, and the patient has trauma to the chest wall and to the lung. And you also can see there's a fracture of the left symphysis. You can see the bony fragments present in air. And you know this patient has to have a bladder injury or a high likelihood based on the hematoma in the left bladder wall, the air in the bladder, and the air anteriorly. So in this case, you would have to, if you hadn't done it already, do a CT cystogram. If you knew the scenario, perhaps you could have saved some dose by doing the CT cystogram from the get-go. Now, when you look at the bladder, you can see very nicely when you distend it, very smooth, well-defined, and if there is extravasation, CT is over 95% accurate. So examples, here's a bladder perforation, Pelvic fractures, sacral fractures. Look at the intraperitoneal extension of the contrast. Very nicely shown. This patient will be going to surgery or this case, fracture of the symphysis. You can see some bony fragments are projected posteriorly. That's always of concern. There's a Foley catheter. There's some stranding in the prevesical space. And when you give the contrast, look at the perforation anteriorly. You see the contrast extravasation. Here's a few more images showing it very nicely. Here's some images in the sagittal plane and on delayed phase imaging. So just a very nice example of that process. Now in terms of bladder hemorrhage, you can see it sometimes in non-contrast CT, there's hemorrhage here, but you're not sure it's from the bladder or perhaps it's from the kidneys. At times, bladder hematomas can simulate um, tumors in the bladder. Here's that patient a little bit later on. So again, it's a very important finding. Now as we look at the pelvis, we also talk beyond the bladder. We'll need to look in this case with a gunshot wound at the bladder, but you see air in the ischiorectal fossa. Could there be rectal injury or colon injury present? And let's do this. Let's talk about this in detail, but let's take a five-minute break and then come back and discuss it. And we'll see you back here in five minutes. Thanks a lot.